calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the Serial Audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of book one in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full-length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com slash alive. 40. Bishop carries Matilda cradled in his arms, as if she weighs nothing at all. She's led us into unknown areas. We run across a flat surface, which means we're moving down the length of the cylinder instead of up or down the curve. Everything is dark. Thin lines of glowing color stretch across the floor. It's enough light to keep me from panicking, but barely. Elsefani is once again out in front. Bishop O'Malley and I are a few steps behind them. The rest follow, including the three lines of kids. Some of them are crying, whining for mothers and fathers that don't exist but they stay in their ranks, and they keep pace. That's all we can ask for. Baden and Visca bring up the rear, my ash-covered warriors making sure no one attacks us from behind. All of this is catching up with me. The march to the garden, the fighting, the fact that I have been going for so long, making all the hard decisions. I am so tired. Every muscle screams at me to lie down, to give up, but we can't stop now. We must escape before it's too late. Keep moving, I called to the others. Keep moving. We are all close to quitting. The fighting in the garden must have been bad. We leave a trail of blood behind us. There isn't time to fix our wounds. I should have had us grab fruit to eat as we run. But I didn't think of it, and now it is too late to go back. Matilda has us following a blue line. The ceiling is somewhere high above. The walls are hidden by shadows. The echoes of our footsteps tell me this area is big, bigger than the garden, bigger than anything we have ever known. We don't have time to explore, and even if we did, I wouldn't want to know what the darkness holds. Monster, I say to my creator, how much farther? We are the same person, she says. You should call me by our name. How much farther? She sighs seems to wince at the same time. The fight was bad for her, too. She's been waiting at the hidden opening she used to attack Bellow and me. She knew we would come. She is me, after all. And attacking the garden is exactly what she would have done in the same situation. She laid a trap for us, but she hadn't planned on our ability to organize and work together. Or on our ferocity. 
Maybe in her mind, we are still kids. It should have been easy for her kind to overwhelm us. Things did not go how she expected. When I poked my spear through the thicket wall, the blade pierced her shoulder. An accident, but at least we finally had some luck go our way. Matilda has lost a lot of blood. And then there is her ruined eye. She's in great pain, doing her best to not show it. The shuttle is close, she says. Can't you see your people are exhausted, little leader? We have time to stop and rest. I sense she's lying about time, but telling the truth that it's close. I think she's trying to stall. It doesn't take the brilliance of Gaston or Spingate to know why. Her friends are preparing to come after us, or are already on the way. Up ahead, the dim blue line on the floor splits in two. Part of it keeps going straight, part of it angles off to the left. Elsafani stops there, looks back at us. A dried up black hand reaches out, points a thin finger to the left. That way, Matilda says. In the darkness, Elsafani's cracking red-gray paste makes the twins look identical. Neither boy nor girl, but some combination of both. I point down the path to the left, and they go rushing on ahead. We all follow them. It's still too dim to see, but the echoes of our footsteps change. We have entered a smaller room. Lights come on, too bright, so bright it burns. I shield my eyes, blink as something starts to take shape. Something long. Unlike everything else on board the Zolodal, there are no runes or carvings. It is not made of stone. It is smooth, sleek, gleaming metal. It is big enough to hold all of us a dozen times over. The shuttle. If we can figure out how it works, Omeokan is ours. 41. Memories royal in my head. My brain searches for words to describe the things I see. The shuttle's tail is off to our left, I think. The tapered nose points to the right. A long, thick tube, thicker than four or five of us standing on each other's shoulders, connects them. At the tube's middle is a wide metal platform. A ramp, running perpendicular to the shuttle, leads from the floor to the platform. We are perhaps a hundred steps away from the shuttle. The gleaming hull is smooth as glass, even where the platform is. I don't see a way in. I look around. We've passed through an archway of heavy, rust-free metal. Like all the archways before, this one is dense with images. But these are images I have not yet seen. Planets, groups of stars, long cylinders, and some things I don't recognize. This room isn't much taller than the shuttle's tail. Above it, a curved ceiling of crisscrossing white bars. A short distance from the shuttle's nose stands a second archway, the biggest I have seen yet, big enough for the entire shuttle to pass through. The doors within it are metal, not stone. I wonder if the blackness of space is beyond them. Bishop, bring the monster. Everyone else, stay here. We run to the ramp. The ramp's surface is sharp, maybe to keep people from slipping. Small hard points dig into the soles of my feet, reminding me how sore and swollen they are. We stand on the platform. Matilda, tell us how to get in. Her head lolls over Bishop's thick arm. I don't know if she's faking or dying. 
Her half-limp hand points to a spot on the shuttle's hull. There, I can make out a thin-lined square about the size and height of my face. Do we press it? I ask. Tell us how it works. Shriveled shoulders shrug. I don't know. I'm just an empty. An empty? What is she talking about? Is she lying about not knowing how it works? Is she stalling again? No, I sense that she's telling the truth. We came all this way, and now we can't get in. We're running out of time. We have to do something, and fast. I need someone smarter than me to figure this out. I look back at our group. A hundred steps isn't that far away. But beneath this room's sprawling ceiling, my people look so small. The children stand packed together with my friends surrounding them, protecting them. Spingate, Gaston, get up here. The two sprint to join me. I turn back to the gleaming shuttle to examine that square. And for the very first time in my life, I see myself. Those eyes, they are brown. Strands of heavy black hair hang down my face, drape across my shoulders. The braid that Bello lovingly made is now a tattered mess. Red-gray ooze has dried on my cheek and chin. My upper lip is split and bleeding. One of my eyes is swollen. The skin there discolored and blacker than Gaston's was when I first met him. I see and feel a hard, growing, shiny lump on my forehead. I'm covered in cuts, scrapes, and bruises. Ripped shirt, scratched skin, bloody and beaten. I am beautiful. Not beautiful, as in what I could be when all of this goes away, but rather what I am right now, with these badges of bravery spotting my skin. Someday, these wounds will heal, and I will see myself as Matilda intended me to be. But for now, this face, the battered face of a fighter, a warrior, is mine and mine alone. Spingate and Gaston thump up the ramp. I have to tear my attention away from my reflection. It is a hard thing to do. I point at the hull's gleaming surface without looking at it. That square is the way in, I say. Matilda claims she doesn't know how to open it. Spingate caresses the metal, slides her hands across the lines, almost like she's smoothing out invisible wrinkles. Her fatigue and fear vanish. Here's a puzzle. Her whole being responds instantly. She puts her hand on the square, pushes it in, then turns it. The square slides away inside the shuttle, revealing the same kind of plaque we saw in the door that led down to the haunted room. Black glass with the imprint of a hand, and in the center of that hand, a jagged circle. No, wait, it's not a jagged circle. It's a gear. I cup Spingate's elbow. Spin, put your hand on it. She licks her lips, takes a breath, then presses her palm to the imprint. Nothing happens. Gaston nudges me, grins. Well, I guess it's time for me to be the real hero, huh, Em? Should I give it a try? He's got a splatter of red-gray across his chest, and his right ear is a sheet of blood that stains his shirt collar. Fighting monsters and running through an unknown ship haven't dulled his arrogance, not in the least. I nod at him. He rubs his hands together like he's trying to warm them, flicks his fingers outward once, twice, three times, then presses his hand to the black imprint. The shuttle vibrates. More lines appear in the metal, 
emerging out of nowhere as if the hull is splitting. The lines form a rectangle, taller than Bishop and wider than it is tall. Like the small panel Spingate pressed, it recedes slightly back into the ship. A vertical line forms down the middle of this square, cutting it in half. Without a sound, the halves slide away. The shuttle has opened. It is dark inside. El Safani, I say, my voice a bark that echoes through this cavernous room. They both sprint to the ramp. In seconds, they are at my sides. Oddly, neither of them are bloody. The battle must have missed them. I point my spear into the shuttle's darkness. Find out what's in there. They adjust their grips on their bone clubs, then step inside. The moment they enter, lights snap on. It is a corridor that runs left and right, a corridor of red cloth walls and a black metal floor. I can't see anything other than the red corridor wall opposite me. The twins step inside and dart right, disappearing for a moment. Seconds later, they pass in front of me, silently heading the other way. O'Malley walks up the ramp to stand at my left. Bishop moves slightly to stand at my right, Matilda still cradled in his arms. Along with Gaston and Spingate, we wait, both hopeful and full of dread at what El Safani might find inside. This has to be it. It has to. We have nowhere else to go. El Safani returns to the opening. No one here, boy El Safani says. It looks safe, girl El Safani says. Boy El Safani points to his left, my right, toward the shuttle's nose. A door that way, locked tight, he says. Girl El Safani points to her right, my left. I've never seen her so excited. That way is a big room, she says, with hundreds of coffins. Coffins? No, that can't be right. Hundreds of us, hundreds of coffins. I'm so tired, and this is starting to confuse me. I won't lie in a coffin again, no matter what. I will not. But if there are hundreds of coffins, that means the room is big, big enough for all of us. It doesn't make any sense to leave our people outside the shuttle, exposed if the monsters come for us. O'Malley, get everyone up here, I say. Let's get them inside. Bishop leans close to me. Postcards at the bottom of the ramp, M, in case we're attacked. I nod, annoyed at myself. Yes, of course. O'Malley, tell Coyotal and Farrar to stand guard at the base of the ramp. El Safani, join them. The twins rush out of the shuttle and take up their positions. O'Malley runs to the others, waving and calling them all to him. Spingate and Gaston step into the shuttle. They go left, toward the room with all the coffins. I don't stop them. Bishop, Matilda, and I remain on the platform. He holds her out to me like she is some kind of offering. We don't need this anymore, he says. Do you want me to kill it? I do. I want that very much. I want him to smash her, stomp her head in, so I can see her brains spill across the platform. Her one eye looks at me. Go ahead, she says, her voice croaking, spent. Images flash in front of me, conflicting visions. Bishop strangling the life out of this thing, and Yang, terrified, dying. Kill your enemies. Go ahead, Matilda says again. If it was anyone other than me, you'd have already told your bishop to cut my throat. It would be so easy. I don't even have to touch her. I can just tell bishop to do it. 
young, gasping for breath, his eyes asking me why, over and over again. If you run, we've made it. No one needs to die. I shake my head. You're wrong, Matilda. You are a prisoner. I won't kill a prisoner. Her eye narrows. She doesn't have a mouth, but I know she's smiling. I'm not wrong, she says. You won, little leader. I wasn't that much older than you when I handed out my first death sentence. I know you would kill your enemies, because that's what I would do. The eye closes. Her voice becomes a regretful whisper. It's what I did. Be forever free. She ordered people's deaths? I think of all the bodies in the Zolodal, all the sacrifices and the mutilation. A shudder ripples across my skin. All those bodies, were they because of her? My knife sliding into Yang's belly, all that rage, all that hatred. He thought he could hit me? He thought he could take away my leadership? Finally, that confused, desperate moment becomes clear. My memories crystallize, come into sharp focus. I know what I did, and I am horrified by it. When Yang attacked me, I stabbed him. I remember pointing the knife. I remember the small step forward as he came in. I remember jamming the blade into his belly. And I remember sneering when I did it. Stabbing him felt, it felt good. Yang's death was no accident. I killed him. Guilt pours over me like an icy waterfall. I killed Yang. My brain played some kind of trick on me, hid the truth away. But now that I've seen it for what it is, I will never be able to unsee it. I don't know if it was right or wrong. He attacked me. I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't stabbed him. I will never know. But there is no denying the fact that when he came at me, I cut him down. It's all too much to handle. I need someone to help me understand. Perhaps the only one who can is the creature who made me. Matilda, did you ever kill anyone? She coughs. I told you I did. So many people. I shake my head. No, not order someone to die. Did you ever kill anyone yourself? Her one eye stares at me like I've asked her a question in another language. The silence is its own answer. She's responsible for the death of hundreds of people, maybe thousands. But she commanded other people to do the dirty work. She's never taken a life. Her hands have always stayed clean. Yang died right in front of me, staring at me with accusing eyes. He died crying for a mother who never existed. Maybe it was just a playground fight to him. Maybe he was just being a bully. Maybe he didn't understand who was attacking, and that ignorance cost him his life. I killed him. His blood was on my hands. It was on my shirt. It was all over me. Unlike Matilda, I know what it feels like to take a life to see the look of intelligence wiped away, to know that I have forever ended a person. Bishop glares at me, shakes his head in disapproval. Em, don't listen to this thing. Give me the order. It would be so easy to do that. Matilda is my enemy, and I want her dead, want it so badly. No, that's what she would do. This creature that I could become, that in some ways I already have become. If I make the wrong choices, I could follow her path. I know what it means to kill. 
Even though she is far older, she does not. And that knowledge, I hope, is the thing that will let me be different. I shake my head. We still need her, I say. Bishop's eyes narrow. I'm not sure he believes me. Maybe he's judging me because I can't do what needs to be done. If so, he has every right. The leader has to make the hard decisions. I take a deep breath, try to calm myself. I enter the shuttle. As the twins said, to my right is a closed metal door. It has rounded edges and a wheel in the middle. I haven't seen a door like this before. I walk to it. There is no handle. I try the wheel. It won't budge. At the wheel's hub is a circular plaque. In the middle of it, a golden gear. I quickly go back the other way. The short corridor leads me to a low-ceilinged room. When I enter, I see that Elsafani was right. Gaston and Spingate stand in a wide central aisle. On either side of them, long rows of plain white coffins, the same kind the pigs open to eat the skeletons inside. Aisles also line the outside of the room. There is so much space in here, space for people to sit or walk or lie down or play or whatever anyone wants to do. We don't need to use the coffins. There is enough room for all of us without getting in them. I return to the platform. At the base of the ramp, my people are waiting. The circle stars, the kids, O'Malley and the others. They have been through so much. Even the children who have only been awake for a handful of hours. I wave them in, point toward the coffin room. Get in here fast. Find space and sit down while we get the shuttle going. They filter past me. Can we get the shuttle going? I don't know. It isn't from a lack of memory or a muddy mind. I have no idea how this thing works. And I know Matilda has no idea either. The kids are dirtier now. Grease and grass stains on their clothes. As for those who are my age, their shirts are dirty and torn, streaked with dust and blood. They carry clubs of bone. They have fought to get here, faced down nightmares to earn this moment. Then I see that girl, Zubiri, the tooth girl with the dark skin. She walks to me. Her eyes are round, terrified discs. Em, are we going to die? No, honey, I say. It will be all right. I have to show you something scary, but I'll be right by your side, so don't be afraid. I take her by the hand. I push down my revulsion at the thought of all those coffins, and I lead her to the room. My people spread out. They wander around. They collapse in the aisles. To my horror and amazement, most of the children crawl into coffins and lie down. People are everywhere. The circles, circle stars, circle crosses, the tooths and the double circles, every last one of them is exhausted. They have given everything they have to give. And now, hopefully, their efforts are at an end. Aramovsky is sitting on the floor of an outer aisle, his back against the red carpeted wall. He isn't looking at anything. He's just staring. His shirt is bloody, torn, and finally wrinkled. At last, he looks like one of us. But is he? He stabbed his progenitor, drove the spear into the ancient Aramovsky's leg. If our Aramovsky hadn't done that, would the two of them have already been gone by the time Bishop ripped through the thicket? Our Aramovsky does not look well. Once we make it to Omeokan, I'll have to keep an eye on him. If he needs help, I will help him. Zubiri tugs on my hand. 
What's scary, Em? I point to the coffins. She laughs. Oh, those? Those are beds. Zubiri stands on her tiptoes, pulls on my hand. I bend toward her. She kisses my cheek, then runs into the room. This little girl isn't afraid of the coffins, but I can barely even look at them. Some leader I've turned out to be. Zubiri sits cross-legged in the aisle. She takes a deep breath. She's already relaxed and resting. Very soon, I can rest too, but not yet. The other door awaits. Gaston, Spingate, come with me. Bishop is still in the corridor, still holding the thing called Matilda. O'Malley stands with him. As I move past them, they follow me, falling in with Spingate and Gaston. I stand in front of the strange door. Gaston, I say, get up here. He does. He looks at the wheel's hub, then at me. The sly, self-confident smile again lights up his face. Open it, I say. Gaston puts his hands on the wheel. Left hand presses down, right hand presses up. The wheel turns. It's good to be me, he says. There's a heavy click, and then this final door opens. You have been listening to Alive, book one in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. Produced by Adrian Galvin and engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler, S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors by Kevin McLeod. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.